Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Ray of the Iron Newspaper. As always, I'm joined by George Belshaw of Metro.co.uk, who, as far as I can tell by the picture I see in front of me, believes it is indeed coming home. George, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Uh, yeah, it was fun last night, wasn't it? Very routine win. I, I can't really remember a, an international win in my lifetime that was just so ridiculously easy in a knockout game. So, yeah, it was a nice night. And uh, our third man in the room is, of course, tennis coach Calvin Betton, who has no interest in whether it's coming home or not. Um, no, I wouldn't say no interest, just don't care, really. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Don't care. Don't care. Yeah, it's funny because um, like, I'm, I, I sort of thought there was a bit of an overreaction to beating a really bad Ukraine team yeah. last night. And then my mate was like going, oh, but, you know, you never know in international tournaments. They're the kind of matches that, that you can lose. And I was like, in my time watching England, the only time that I can remember in a in a tournament that they've lost the match that they should have won was against Iceland, and I like that's probably about thirty five years. So, uh, yeah, uh, Romania ninety eight or uh, two thousand. Group, group stages, though. Oh, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, English exceptionalism at its finest. But that's all the football that we really need to talk about. This is the Love Tennis Podcast, not the Hate England Podcast. Um, we've got loads to chat about after a week of Wimbledon. I hope you enjoyed our Wimble pods over the last couple of days as George and I staggering back to the tube station at midnight. Um, we'll talk, of course, about Emma Raducanu, uh, the Brits in round three and the Brits in round four. Spoiler alert, there's a big difference between the number of them. Uh, a bit of Nick Kyrgios, um, a remarkable uh, sort of spat between Alia Tomljanovic and Yelena Ostapenko yesterday. Uh, Calvin will give us a little bit of a lowdown on bubble life. Uh, and we'll, of course, look forward to the second week of Wimbledon and try and unpick the draw, which I was hoping we might have a better idea of who's going to win the women's singles. I have even less of an idea 
than I did a week ago. But let's start with, well, certainly in the UK, the biggest story of the last 24 hours in tennis. Uh, Emma Raducanu is into the fourth round of Wimbledon. Um, it's quite hard to overstate how big an achievement this is for an 18-year-old who was ranked outside the top 300 in the world when she was awarded the wild card. Um, she had a career prize money of £28,000. Uh, I think she has already wrapped up something like £150,000. 181, uh, I think. 181, is it, George? I didn't know the exact number. Uh, so she is... Uh, I mean, it's a huge breakthrough, isn't it, George? And by all accounts, she wrecked Serana Castella. Yeah, it was a brilliant performance. Um, I have to say that that was one of the few matches I've been to where I was sat there with goosebumps. Uh, I just... It, I was astonished by how good she was. Um, you know, I've seen her play a few times before and you know, we all know how talented she is, but the manner of the win. Castella, you know, okay, on paper, world number 46, maybe not as impressive as in the second round, taking out a former French Open finalist, but on form, Castella's been, you know, in great form this year. I think she's like 26 in the world this year. She's taken out Conta comfortably in two slams in the last 12 months. And, you know, we know Conta's had her struggles, but... The, the contrast between the two performances uh, was crazy. Um, I, I was so impressed with how she returned, uh, particularly. Um, she just seems to see the ball so well and send it back with so much purchase. Um, brilliant forehand and backhand winners. Serve a little bit nervy at times, um, but still pretty good when it was firing. Fair few aces. Um and I think probably the one thing that was clear she needs to work on is her net game. She barely came in, but the one time <laughs> she did, it was almost a complete disaster. So, so that's a, so that's the one area of criticism. But I, I, honestly, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. It's one of the best matches I've been to at Wimbledon, just in terms of how excited I was. Uh, it was mm. brilliant. Um, for people who don't know much about Emma Raducanu, she um she was born in Canada actually in Toronto. Uh, her father's Romanian. That's that's where the name comes from. Her mother's Chinese. They moved to the UK when she was two. Um, she's extremely bright. She's got A-levels just. Well, I don't think she's got her results yet, actually, in, in maths and economics. She goes to a school uh, in Bromley, which is known as an extremely academic school. I know all schools are supposed to be academic, but it's a state grammar with a very serious reputation. Um, Calvin, I, I know you'll have known her or certainly known about her for quite a long time. I you know, kind of from the outside, she's the one that people have always said is the one, if that makes any sense. Yeah, she's always been very talented. Um, she's very good. She's always won at every level that she's been at. Um, I've sort of thought that she, when people, when sort of companies ask me, like racket companies, clothing companies, who they should be going after, I've said for a few years that that she's the only person that I'd be looking at paying serious money to if I was in that line of work. Um, there's been a couple of issues about whether her body holds up. I think mm. she's had a couple of niggling injuries, that kind of thing. Her dad is um, different. Um, <laughs> her dad is wants her to have a different coach for every shot, which right, is something okay. I know we spoke about a bit on here before. Um, I, I think that I don't sort of don't want to put dampeners on it or anything, but I think there is still some issues that need to be resolved like that. For example, she hasn't really had a coach for about 18 months, which has kind of worked for the, this 18 months just gone. 
Mm. Um, they have some strange ideas on how to best develop her from here, right. which I don't necessarily think are the right ideas. Yeah, we we spoke to Nigel Sears on um, Friday. He's kind of taken taken over to the end of the grass, I think, um, initially. Um, but he, you know, he's uh, he's obviously someone who's worked with some pretty good players in the past, like Anna Ivanovic, Daniela Hanchukova, um, and you know, we we kind of had him and him on on Friday, um, and, and we were kind of normally when you get a coach speaking about a player like this, they're like, oh yeah. Let's not let's not get too hyped about them. Let's calm down. And uh, he was just crazy. I mean, he was just sitting there going, to, "Yeah, sky's the absolute limit. She's going to be easily top player. She's comparable to Ivanovic and Hentichova. You know, there was no holding back." So, um, yeah, there's a remarkable amount of hype there, isn't? And I've also heard behind the scenes, yeah, kind of what Calvin was saying there that a few people kind of were doubting her perhaps physical condition, um, but. They've all, other people I've talked to say she's worked really hard on that in the last year, even if she's not played much competitive tennis. I think she's been kind of quite far removed from the competitive tennis sphere, even if she's been training. So that's made her results all the more, more remarkable, really. I think even the situation with Nigel C is a bit of a strange one because he's been kind of consultant to the coaching team for a couple of years. Yeah. And now he's on one of the famed trial periods. <laughs> so like... I find it bizarre that someone's on a trial period having been around the camp for, and I say consultant, he's been on court with her a lot because I've seen him on mm. court with her a lot. Um, Matt James has done a hell of a lot of work with her, um, who now works at the LTA, but prior to that, he did a couple of years with with Emma. Petchy's done a little bit. Um, he did a bit last summer with her, that kind of thing. But um, I know the, the agent is heavily involved in her tennis development, which I'm never really a huge fan of. And he has some strange ideas as to what he wants her to hit with a, a, a male player who is, has a standard of top 200 uh, and anything below that isn't good enough, which I can assure you is absolute nonsense. Hmm. Um, he's turning down players who are ranked legitimately 500 in the world and claiming they're not good enough to hit with her and she wouldn't get a game off them. Which is... Um... Part of uh, Eisenberg's uh, yeah. Um, who, for the uninitiated, to talk us, what does that mean, George? Uh, IMG Sharapova's former agent, very uh, what's the word? Confrontational, I would say. Would right. Really, it's quite interesting. I mean, it's not so much to do with me because it's a bit more of a past thing. But I know there's a bit of uh, standoff between him and the British media generally. Um, so uh, yeah, it's quite an interesting quite an interesting situation that just to see how that evolves going forward but yeah he, he's uh he's an interesting character by all accounts i don't i've not really dealt with him too much um but yeah. I, I think um, i'll stress again i think she's a phenomenal talent i think she might be the biggest talent in british tennis male or female at the minute but it, it, it did kind of i do think we're in danger of a little bit of overhype like as soon as she won yesterday the commentator said a new star is born hmm. uh, and then kept kept reiterating that just let this sink in that she is 18 years old it's like that's not that strange in the women's game yeah to be 18 and reaching the fourth round of a slam yeah Igis Fiontek won won one last year at, I think the same age or was she 19 when she won one but still, either way I, I said it I was yeah. playing cricket yesterday and I picked up my phone in the afternoon so oh my god Emma Raducanu won and someone said well who's that and I thought like, oh, she's this 18 year old Brit 
she's into the fourth round and they were like isn't 18 like the peak age for women's tennis players yeah and I was like well <laughs> you know no but also it's their point and, and also Coco Goff was on the other court next to her who's who was doing that two years ago when she was 15 yeah so and it's also again I'm I'm really cautious about sounding like a grumpus here and, and sort of knocking it down but she's had a pretty tasty draw yeah and still does now as well like to get to the she could reach the quarterfinals without playing a seed yeah. Um, which, you know, and, and I think it's difficult because I think with, with Emma, with the level that she is, it's always difficult with rankings, especially in the women's game, because they sell it that she's beaten this player who's this many rankings above her, but she's not played many tournaments. Like her mm. standard has been for a while. I'd say her standard would be, if you look overall, somewhere inside the top 200. So in the first round, I think she beat somebody who was ranked about, 178 and you think well that's not really a shock to me because that's her level and you know Kirstea is she's I'd say that she's nowhere near as good as she has been when she's at her best um, mm. I thought she was pretty poor yesterday mm. yeah I mean it's interesting. I, I think again the hype just comes from the manner of it doesn't it really I think yeah. it, was, it was the way she was kind of relishing the big court moment walking around with the swagger, the smile. You know, we've seen so many British players in the past kind of do well Drink. for a couple of rounds and then, you know, not quite bring their best game. And yeah, I agree with Calvin, actually. I don't think Kirsten played the best match of her life either. But to be fair, I thought Raducanu was just all over a serve and Kirsten has got a good serve um, yeah. in the women's game. And Raducanu really made it look very, very ordinary. Um, and it probably could have been a, a bit more of a comfortable scoreline, really. Um, probably should have been six three six three. I think she missed like three or four break points um, around. Uh, yeah, what's what stood out to me? She has got a good serve, but there are there are certain moments in the tennis match where you look at it and and certain things happen, and you think you have to make a first serve in those circumstances. And every time when I was watching it, Castella didn't make a first serve. Where when I think like she got there was one game where she'd got to I think she was love forty. Um, because they was love 40, so three bake points to Radicanu, and then Radicanu played a pretty bad game from there, got it back, it went back to advantage juice and then to advantage Castella, and then she served a double fault. Mm-hmm. And it's just criminal stuff like that. That you know, match management for somebody who's been so good, the match management was terrible, and it, and it was weird because she was kind of getting distracted by a few things. Like when she'd um, she had the break in the first set, she was up 3 1. Yeah, and it, when just before Raducanu broke back for three two, she was starting to moan about the kind of the tiniest few drops in the air, and she got Ramos to come down from a chair on break point and like touch the grass. It was promptly broken. It's just like in that moment, what? Yeah. Why would you want to break when it's you're serving on break point? Like finish the game, then deal with it. And there were just a few moments like that where she on the other end. But again, I, you know, I. I'd like to credit Emma for that as well. To you know, she, I think Castella was a bit like, "Oh crap, this eighteen-year-old's absolutely blasting me off the court here, and I'm I'm uncomfortable." So credit to Emma for that as well. I think. I think as well, just to again, just to sort of regards to this hype as well that we have to get a grip on it. Like you just said, that that it's not eighteen's not that strange in the women's game, but there's a couple. It was I think it was 2018, maybe she played junior Wimbledon and had a great run. Uh, in junior Wimbledon and then lost, I think, love and one to Svontek. Um mm. And and I think the level between the women's game from, I'm going to say 20, 20 to 100, like you feel that anyone can be anybody. 
Mm. And then there's a there's a big step up then, like in you know from from twenty upwards. Yes, George. But we have seen open draws, haven't we? I mean, if we look at the slam winners and the rankings, they're winning it. I mean, Krachikova's coming into the main draw, winning it. Sviontek's, you know, obviously yeah. we knew Sviontek was really good, but she was 65 in the world and blasts through the French. You know, Ostapenko in 2017. There have been kind of odd moments where you just sense you can ride the crest of a wave. And I do wonder if Raducanu's kind of looking at it and thinking... Why the hell not? And she kind of said that about the fourth round, didn't she? She said, "Well, she's right, isn't it?" I get there. Like, yeah, I, I don't think I wouldn't say Tomjanovic is any better player than Kostea. Like, no. you'd ban you'd ban them in the same category, basically, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Speaking of Alia Tomjanovic, George, you will have had um eyes on this incident yesterday. She uh, was in a big hitting third round clash with Yelena Ostapenko. She came from a set down. Um, to win four six six four six two, but that wasn't the scoreline was kind of uh, not the headline, so to speak. There was a, a disagreement over an injury timeout. Tell us more. Yeah, I, I actually wasn't covering this. Um, my colleague was, but I, I have obviously read it and watched it. Um, I mean, it was absolutely astonishing. Like, so Ostapenko was trying to take a timeout for an ab injury. Tom Lanovich eventually essentially was just accusing her on court of lying and mm. not suffering an injury at all and trying to take like a, a tactical medical timeout. Because she was, was she four love down in the yeah. third set? Yeah. Um, so obviously at the end, then Tom Lanovich doesn't go over for a handshake and starts standing in the middle of the court, like, look at me. And then they go for this handshake and just stand there arguing. It was kind of like, you remember Fonini having that argument in Italian? With uh, Travaglia. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that was great because it was all in Italian. So we didn't know what they were saying. And it just never stopped at no point until it, even after they got off court, it never stopped. Uh, was it, They were on an outside court, weren't they, Ostapenko and Tom Yambi? Yeah, I think 15, maybe. Because so you know, yesterday they put all the singles on the outside courts early because they were worried about rain. So mm. it was really spread rather than normally they kind of build it up on two or three or whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it was a great round. And normally what happens with this sort of thing is they come into press afterwards and they're a bit like, oh, you know, it would, I don't I don't want to focus on it too much. Just didn't happen. They just came in. You know, Ostapenko was like, she's disgraceful. If I played 50%, I'd have beaten her. And then Tomlanovich comes in and she goes, uh, oh, she's an absolute disgrace. She's a Grand Slam champion and this is what kids have to look up to. I mean, it was superb. They were really just going for each other, which, uh, and I, you know, in terms of a story that's cut through for tennis, that ever had loads of people have been texting me about it. You know, it's the sort of thing that this sport just normally shies away from. I think it's hilarious and great fun. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. hard to get too angry about it. Although, like the medical timeout thing, it, it it's pretty transparent when you do it. Uh, I'm not going to suggest that Ostapenko was doing it, but like she's not above a bit of shithousery. And uh, I think it's reasonable to suggest that at four love down in the decider with no obvious apparent discomfort, this comes under the realm of shithousery. <laughs> it was definitely, I mean, how was the umpire letting go on for 12 minutes? <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that's not the rule, is it? Isn't it? You still have to be under four minutes, don't you get? I don't think it's like you get as long as you want, do you? Uh, I don't I don't know. It's very strange. I. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of one of those as well. It's kind of a, unless you literally can't play any longer, it's a given that you wait till the change of ends. It's kind of an unwritten rule. 
And I think that's what upset Tomjanovic the most, that she just sat down and refused to play. But it did crap me up. I mean, so much of it crap me up. Like, Tomjanovic coming with, like, she's a Grand Slam champion. Kids look up to her. Like, what kids are looking up to Elena Yostopenko <laughs> in 2021? I mean, yeah, come on. Like, let's be serious. And, like, it, it didn't surprise me. So I was on actually on the next court uh, practising to Tomjanovic um, one of the days last week. She was practising with, because she's Berrettini's girlfriend, for anyone who doesn't know. And she was practising with Berrettini. And like, let's just say she was taking no shit off uh, off Berrettini when he was he was might have been throwing in a few drop shots and that kind of thing. So was, I think Isner and um, and Riley Apelka were on the same court, and I think he was a borderline taking the piss out of his girlfriend with a few <laughs> drop shots, and she didn't take kindly to it. So it, it doesn't surprise me that she didn't take kindly to Ostapenko shithousing a bit. Excellent. Um, that does kind of open up the draw, as you mentioned. Uh, she will now play Emma Raducanu in the fourth round. The winner of that match will play Ashley Barty or Barbara Krajikova, two French Open champions, up against each other. Um, George, I feel like Ash Barty's gone under the radar a little bit this week because there's been so much other stuff happening. And, you know, she, she lost a set to Carlos Suarez Navarro in, in what was a very a slightly odd and very emotionally charged match, but I think we can forgive her that. Um, but otherwise, she's just kind of gone about her business and and just won her way through, hasn't she? Yeah, I mean, a few of my colleagues have described this as one of the best first weeks of Wimbledon they can remember in terms of just that kind of crazy stories going on that have kind of meant, you know, people like Barty, Djokovic, even Federer to a slight degree. I know his first match was quite newsworthy in terms of the Manorino retirement. Um kind of gone under the radar and not been the focus this week. You know, we've had all the Murray action and Raducanu fever taking over. Um, so, yeah, she's going quietly along. I wouldn't say she's been massively pushed yet by any of the players she's played. Um, it's good. She looks fit, though, which I, was a little bit of a worry, mm. you know, from a fantasy perspective. That was the only thing putting me off picking her from the top four players. Um, but she seems okay. I... I'm not. I'm still not convinced she's going to win it, though. I have to say, I don't know why. I just think I've seen other players play better. I think Sviontek's playing really high level. I think Goff's playing really high level. It wouldn't surprise me if Barty lost to Krachikova. I, I, I just got that strange feeling that Krachikova is just feeling completely unbeatable, even though she wasn't particularly great in her last match. I don't know why. I'm, I'm, that may be totally wrong. But... That is proper hunch, that, isn't it, George? It's just like, um, you don't even think she played well the last time you saw her play. Yeah. And you it's, she... it's just, I, I don't know. Krachikova didn't actually play that well for a lot of the French Open matches she won either. Mm. And she's just in this mode where she's winning big points and big moments and believes she's going to win it and kind of... Because she, this is her first Wimbledon main draw, right, in singles. I mean, there's actually no scarring with her full stop in these main draws. And I, I don't know. I think that is just quite a dangerous place to be. I mm. wouldn't want to be Barty going into that match, really. Um, but yeah, she's, she's going fine. And don't get me wrong, she could win it. She's definitely one of the players who could win it. But um, probably all 16 left in them could win it. I mean, it's just that's just women's tennis at the minute. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Iga Shontek. She has put in some pretty terrifying results. In the third round, she beat Arena Camellia Bagu 6-1, 6-love. I think she was the first person into the third round. Um, she also beat Suwe Shea in the first round, uh, Vera Zvonareva in the second round. Um, she takes on Ons Jabur, 
yeah. who dispatched Gobinia Muguruza in an absolute epic battle on Friday. Uh, two and a half hours. I think it actually lasted longer than the Andy Murray match later on that night. Um, she, Shvontek, Calvin, I know you spotted her playing junior Wimbledon and were very impressed. Um, presumably, you're pretty confident that she's got a chance of winning this thing. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably make her favourite um, over Barty. Um, I find it quite strange that she said, she said like in a, I don't know, it was an interview or a press conference earlier in the week that she she doesn't like grass or she doesn't know anything about grass. And then Sue Barker was was spinning it yesterday, and I'm like, this is like this is not based in any form of reality. She cruised Junior Wimbledon. She beat the top seed in the first round um, that year and lost a set, and then didn't lose another set for the whole tournament. I watched a couple of matches in that in that um, tournament, and she destroyed everybody. She's got perfect game for grass. I don't get this idea where she might not like grass, and as Sue Barker said, doesn't know anything about grass. Um, but yeah, I, I think she she probably wins it. I'll just sort of go on to I watched the Muguruza um, Jabua match, and again, every time I watch Muguruza, and when she's winning the first set, it still blows my mind that she hasn't dominated women's tennis for about the last three years. Yeah. And and you can't put your finger on quite what the problem is. She she doesn't have any real weaknesses in her game. Serves good, forehand's good, backhand's good, solid. She's got the skills. You feel that she might have some sort of mental issues and struggle with nerves, but she's also won two slams. So like you can't say that 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 you can't say that she can't get over the line. It's just something isn't happening, and I can't put my finger on it. I I actually feel a little bit for her in terms of draws recently again I know on paper Jabor may not seem like the most terrifying draw but this is someone coming in with mass confidence playing really good tennis this year just very high because I, I do think Jabor will kind of upset a lot of people in the third round and then fade in a second week which is a bit of a kind of a Jan Leonard Struff if you like someone you don't want to meet in the first three rounds um yeah, she's someone who was has probably been quite adversely affected by the pandemic in terms of she's played really well and not had the ranking benefits of it when people like Benchich have just kept, you know, four places above her because she's not able to kind of make that dent in it. Um, but yeah, get, you know, going back to Siontech, I think the, the narrative that's come around her is that she she's only won something like five or six tour-level matches on the grass, I think. Um, mm. But as Calvin says, you know, she has only really been a pro for like a year and Wimbledon didn't happen last year. So it's not like we were pro for like a couple of years. So one of her Wimbledons didn't happen. Um, so it's, it's no great surprise. And I think we've said it a long, for a long time of all of them, she's the most obvious all court player. She's so good on every surface. She's got the game, um, the touch, the power, the clean ball striking. Yeah. She's a natural on grass and, yeah, she, she's definitely the one to beat at the minute, even though I'm uh, holding out for a Carolina Mukova win to save my fantasy team. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, do we really need to factor in the grass? Because Nick Kyrgios says it's like playing at Roland Garros. So <laughs> would automatically be favourite, wouldn't she, for that tournament? Yeah, I, I raffled it all sitting at home going, oh, no, I should go. I should yeah. go to win with that. Um, yeah, it, it would be it's quite nice to come on to Nick Kyrgios. Just before we do, Iga Shrontek is third favourite with the bookies at the moment. Uh, really? You can get, yeah, you can get her pretty much at seven to one to so, win the whole thing. So Barty and Goff ahead of her. Savalenka ahead of her. Oh, Goff, really? is, Goff is the Goff's fourth favourite. Uh, yeah, ten to one in most places. I'm surprised people are 
backing Sabalenka so much. I mean, I, I know she's played quite well, but she's never been past the fourth round of a slam, got real history of just bottling it in big moments. I mean, I, she's, I, 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 think she, I think she loses to Rubikina. I, she's, I've watched her a lot this week. And um, in fact, I think I've watched all her matches pretty much on court. And she, she should be great on grass. She hits the ball massive. She's just got surprisingly good touch, but actually some of that breaks down in, in big moments. Like she did it against Bolter, you know, first time on centre court playing a home player. And, you know, she would just hit volleys halfway up the net that she, the day before or two days before on number one against Nicolescu, she was nailing and looking great. Um, so I think she's definitely like mentally vulnerable, but she's also, she's kind of got that off her back a little bit now. Like she's played on centre court in quite a high stakes game against a player who everyone else wants to win, which is quite a, you know, that's a tight moment, that whole match. And she's sort of got over that hump. Uh, I can't remember what court she's playing on, on Manic Monday off the top of my head. Court uh, three. Court three. So, I mean, that's pretty good for her, I think, to be out, out on three at 11 o'clock in the morning as well. R- like, that's quite a good player. Though. I think so you still think Ribatina wins? I think that's going to be really close. I, I wouldn't want to call it, but I think Sabalenka can definitely lose that match. Cue her winning two and one now. So, um... <laughs> yeah, you, you have cursed her. Um, let, let's move on to the men's draw. Calvin, you mentioned Nick Kyrgios's Roland Garros comment. Uh, I was on court when he was playing Gianluca Major, or Mega, Maga, uh, the Italian lad, who I really knew almost nothing about. Um, and so turned up for this match basically just to spend an hour listening to Nick Kyrgios and wasn't disappointed. But also, Gianluca Mega just turned up and whacked it for an hour. I mean, I've never seen someone hit the ball so big, like who has previously never really gained a reputation for hitting it big as far as I know. And actually, Kyrgios said the same in, in post-match press. Um, but yes, he was complaining about, he said, make it real grass at one point, uh, which I don't think he meant kept like, marijuana i think he meant like you know fast grass uh he complained it was too slow he at one point he tried to hit the serve out wide and he said <laughs> out loud he said look just so you know that serve's supposed to slide off out wide not like pop up like that so i now can't hit that serve you, you know all saying all this while basically in his service motion for the next serve um uh, calvin we've talked about court conditions a lot and how much people go on about them Wimbledon's been slow for 15 years, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it needs it needs to be quicker. We're still sort of in the, the hangover from the, the mid to late 90s, actually, where the serve was dominating so much that they made a conscious effort to slow the balls and the courts down. Mm. Um, and now I think it probably needs speeding up a bit. Um, but world tennis seems obsessed with slow courts, so it seems unlikely that we're going to get that. Um I mean, I suppose if you think about just trying to take our tennis hats off and you think about kind of the wider game, you know, the points that go viral on Twitter, for example, or whatever, it, it's not some bloke hitting four aces. Although that might occasionally be interesting, it's not what makes people interested in tennis. Uh, the points that make people interested in tennis are the epic rallies or the incredible drop shots. And, yeah. you know, it's baseline stuff. And I suppose that's why courts are slowing down. Yeah, I think, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, it's not a slow court at Wimbledon. Um, yeah. I've been there this week and 
and told the match court to faster than the practice courts and the practice courts are pretty quick. If you hit a first serve, then it, it's not coming back yeah. 70% of the time. Um, I mean, I watched doubles match obviously last week and the rallies were pretty short. Mm. Match was pretty dominated by serve and then the volley of putting the ball away. So it, it's not it's not a slow court. It's probably, yeah, some players would probably prefer it to be faster. It's then, it's getting that balance, isn't it? Because like you say, tennis has a problem with people not watching it and people want to see longer rallies. Mm. But some players' games are based on short rallies and that's how they earn their living. And I guess that there's a there's an argument that it's it's stifling that, but, you know, learn to do more. I don't think, yeah, Kyrgios was complaining all this time, right? He was winning all the time. It's like, <laughs> I think he does a lot of this stuff just to take his, just to occupy his mind. But, yeah. you, you know, it, it's like, he, he went like the match that he played against Umber, it was pretty much the same as they played in Australia. So mm. I, I'm just not buying that the court was, yeah, the court was really, it really mattered. Yeah, I, I was going to just say the exact same thing. I mean, the guy was still bombing down aces and half the serves weren't coming back. Yeah. Um, you know, it made no difference to his game. And the only thing that let him down in the end is his body, which we've spoken about time and time again, is the one thing that lets this guy down, really. It's just... It's not the one thing. Not the one thing, but it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it is the main thing, isn't it? Like, I know he's obviously got... Good, <clears> but his body is not... He's not been playing professional tennis. He's not been dedicating his life to it. Yeah. I don't really get why you'd sign up to singles and mixed doubles in that scenario. You know, but a three-hour mixed on Friday as well. Um, you know, which he, he really enjoyed and was great. You know, that was a really good advert for Wimbledon. And it's nice to see the male players playing with high-profile female players as well. That That's something the sport should be doing more of. But, you know... For someone who's not played for so long, it seemed a pretty bad idea, and so it proved, and you had to pull mm. out after two sets. Um, yeah, George, just talk us through that. He he was he was one set all with Felix Auger-Aliassim, and and he pulled out. What was the specific injury? Uh, it's an ab injury. So he said it happened at the end of the first set, and he played a brilliant first set. I mean, he, we we always talk about him being a great server and actually not being that bothered about his return games. I think he's returned pretty well um, this tournament, and he broke twice in that first set. I know we're talking about. Felix's vulnerabilities on second serves as well but even so Kyrgios statistically is normally like the worst returner on tour and he's been kind of a lot better in that regard um, this week and then yeah lost the second one you could tell he was struggling he was kind of saying to the physio I'm going to pull out at the end of this set um, he said he couldn't like roll over on the serve mm. um, so he is still technically on the schedule with Venus for Monday um, but he, uh, yeah, has basically said it's like 99% certain he'll be pulling out. That is a shame, um, I think, for anyone who's got tickets for, for Monday. I can't even remember what, what the court they're supposed to be on. Um, it's, I think he might have a problem, Kyrgios, as well. Cause he's talking about, what was he saying? He's only going to play, he's going to not play after the US Open. Uh, he said the other day that he's going to play some yeah. some exhibition and then go home, right? Santiago, and yeah, he's playing. Uh, he's playing Marcelo Rios in Santiago. He's doing right. the Olympics, isn't he? Olympics, US, this right. Rios okay. thing, and then home to Australia. I mean, that should be a exhibition in effort. Um, <laughs> Rios against Kyrgios. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he'll get wild cards, so that's no problem. But his ranking's going to go go pretty quick. He just doesn't play enough. He doesn't, yeah. play enough, he doesn't play enough tournaments. Um, and when he does play them, he doesn't go deep enough in them. And it's going to be a problem. But then he, I'd say he'll keep getting wild cards. But 
it's becoming clear that if you remember as well at the the Aussie Open, he had a he had an injury there against mm. team. Um, it's becoming clear his body isn't holding up, and they're not going to keep giving him wild cards if he's going to keep winning a match and then having to withdraw because his body doesn't hold up. I mean, the the one possible sign of encouragement was how he was talking about kind of having a second win for his career after Wimbledon, and like he did seem genuinely kind of like he enjoyed it so much and was frustrated for like injuries. So you kind of hope, and it is a hope, that he'll start kind of dedicating and wanting to get back onto it. You know, I think it's. It's hard to judge exactly what his schedule is going to be like post-pandemic when there's a bit more kind of freedom and not having we, two weeks coming in. But yeah, do we, I think think that's, do we think that's any different from any other time, though? He goes through these spells where he loves it and then he says he doesn't want to play and, and that kind of thing. We've had that yeah, for but, three years. I think he'll he'll definitely be playing more than he has the last two years, won't he? I mean, he, he normally likes a trip to Acapulco. You know, you know, there are things he does normally go and do. You know, you know whatever you... He seems to like, we, we give Benoit Paire stick for doing the exact same tournaments as Nick Kyrgios does. <laughs> like, like, we've got to give Kyrgios it. Like, like, yeah, you know, if we said about Benoit Paire, yeah, he likes going to Acapulco and Miami and London. Like, um, But, yeah, I, I mean, you know, he, he still plays great. He's just a phenomenal talent. And, and you see when when you're around there, the people, the, the players think that he's phenomenal as a player, but he's just not playing. And he made these quotes last week, didn't he? I'd seen everyone was praising him for it. This stuff about saying that, you know, Djokovic and Nadal and Federer, they win the slams, but that's not me. I don't do that. I don't get how that's not a personality trait. I don't get how that's a personality trait that you don't want to win a slam. Like surely you either you either win one or you don't. It's like, why, if you're playing the sport, why would you not want, want to win one? Whether you've got the desire to go and do what's required to win one mm. is different. But he was basically saying he doesn't want to win one. Yeah, I think that, I think he's he's sort of skipping a step there, isn't he? You know, it's it's like saying, I, I don't want to be dictator of the world. Well, it's like, well, actually I do, but like, I don't want to do all the things you yeah. have to do. To become dictator of the world, which and what, what does that mean? Say if he's in the, let's say he gets to, let's say he goes U.S. Open and he gets to the quarters and he two sets to live up, is he going to decide he doesn't want to win a slam? So just sack it from there. Yeah. Or, like, yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I think you're right. I think it is the, you know, the physical conditioning required. Again, I'll, I'll pull out my favorite stat. It's five years since he was in the second week of a Grand Slam. Mm, yeah. Although he nearly was, Calvin. He nearly was. Well, uh, another man who, who nearly was, although it wasn't really that nearly, uh, was Andy Murray. I know we talked a little bit on the Wimblepod number five on Friday about Andy, but Calvin, you obviously weren't in on that. Um, what have you? What do you make of, of Murray's first Wimbledon back as a singles player since, since 2017? Um, two matches were great. It looked like he was enjoying himself. It looked like he was loving it. Uh, it was great for the sport. I think that he got, we got the biggest um, biggest TV viewing that they've ever had, or something like that. Some some mad um, about seven one seven, seven million it peaked at on. Uh, on yeah. Um, still, I think that's probably what we can expect from now on. I, I don't see how it's going to really get any different. Um, mm. He's going to come across. I think. I think he's probably playing at, when he does that, he's probably playing at the level of a guy who's now about 60 in the world. Mm. I think that's probably where he's at. And it's whether he's happy with that, because he's probably going to keep losing in the third round to people like Denis Shapovalov, 
Felix Auger, Alisim, Sitsipas, Verev. You look at it and you wonder, like, which of the top 20 players do you see him beating? Mm, yeah. And actually, that's kind of the thought process that he went through um, that slightly went over some of our heads because it was extremely late on uh, on Friday night. Um, he was impressed and uh, Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times said, I'm going to try and give you an upbeat note to finish this presser on. And he kind of said, you know, what, what it must have felt a bit like the old days at times. And he said, yes, it was great playing in front of crowds and the support. And I got through the matches and felt OK and didn't get injured. And he said, yeah, you know, that's good. But then there's a part of me that feels a bit like I've put in so much work during the last three months and ultimately didn't play how I'd want to and expect. And it's like, is it worth it? Is all of that training and everything that you're doing in the gym, unless you're able to like practice and improve your game and get matches and continue a run of tournaments, is it worth all of the work that you're doing? And it was, you know, to an element that Murray... 45 minutes after the worst loss of his Wimbledon career in terms of games, you know, being pretty pessimistic because that's what happens when you lose a match. But to another extent, that's exactly what you're saying, Calvin, is what is the ceiling on this? You know, he couldn't practice on Thursday. He didn't hit a ball on Thursday after his five-setter on Wednesday. So then he came out on Friday and was pretty slow to start against Shapovalov. And I think that's that's the crux of it. It's whether he thinks there is more to go, whether he thinks he can make progress from this and be in a better physical condition that he can go forward and do more work. It's, sorry, uh, it, it's the problem for me is that you look at when he's at his best, the way that he played, he has to be able to move. He's one mm. of the best movers we've ever seen. He's a defender. That's what he does. He's a defender. He likes to suck his players into attacking and then he counterattacks. It's different when Federer came back, I guess, at the same age. When Federer came back at the same age as Murray is now, in sort of 16, 17, mm. and started winning slams again. But Federer's always been on the front foot. He never, he, he's a beautiful mover, Federer, but he hits winners. He hits more winners than Murray does. His serve is more effective than Murray's is. And I don't see how, unless the one chance that Murray has, and I know a couple of players who, who know their stuff, a couple of high-ranked players who've mentioned this to me, that... The one chance he may have is if he completely changes the way he's played and he just goes all out attack because mm. he's, he's a brilliant ball striker. He's, I, I still think he's probably one, one of the four or five best volleyers in the world and he does have a good first serve. But from what I've seen so far, he doesn't, he's, he's always struggled with that mentally to go in on the attack. Even when he was at his best, everyone was always saying he needs to be more proactive and he won slams without being extremely proactive. So, Fair enough. But now you think that's if he's going to keep coming out and trying to play like he is. Federer could come back when he came back from his injury and play the way he'd always played. That's not going to happen for Murray. He can't move. You can see that. He can't. McEnroe said it and they made out that McEnroe had said something revelatory when he said he can't get out of the corners. Like Anybody who's watched him play tennis can see he can't get out of the corners. I think as well, with Federer, there's like this mindset as well where Federer's happy for you to kind of hit a winner past him. It's Murray like is determined to get to every single ball. And even the ones he doesn't make, he sprints. You know, even the ones you're looking at, you're like, you're not going to get there. Just leave it, mate. It's fine. Like he'll still try and make bust a gut. Like Federer's like, okay, you hit a winner then. I'm just going to come back and hit it. And he needs to kind of, I don't know, kind of almost manage what he needs to do on the court in terms of what's worth breaking himself for in many ways. Like it's just not his style to not want to 
get to everything he wants to show his opponent you can't break me down but the reality is now that Murray has broken down to a degree that he I think he needs to reimagine himself on a tennis court a bit as Calvin's saying it's also like what what does he do now because like, you see a lot of people go no I just need to pack it in but the flip side of that is he still can make the third fourth round of slams a lot of the time if he gets a decent draw he can still go to ATP 250s and if he plays like he has now he can probably still make the odd semi and that kind of thing at, at 500s and 250s at Masters, he probably make the odd the odd quarters and then get beat. So it's a, but then he's going to get beat in much the same way as he just has now. So you know he's probably still got another couple of years where he could do that. And it's like, does he want to, or or does he, is he going to rag it in because he can't win them? The other thing that you know he's been really keen to kind of hammer home is that you know he's had no momentum in this entire time. He's had no chance to kind of play regularly and get his game up to the level and I think that that's where the frustration is going to come you could tell this week he loved the crowd being with him you know he was hyped up he was loving it you know there were so many high points I'm sure he'll look back on this week even if the third round ended how it did he'll look back on this really fondly like some of those matches particularly when you retire and you lose that kind of that huge crowd coming with you and Murray does get huge crowds at centre court like no one else so the atmosphere is incredible um you can just sense with him that it's the stuff that's happening outside these tournaments that's so frustrating. The idea that he can't practice, you know, he kind of alluded to this at Queens. He's like, I need to play at Eastbourne, but I can't I'd risk Wimbledon too much by doing that, but I need these matches. And I think we'll be getting to a stage, obviously he'll go to the Olympics. Sure. That will be okay. Uh, as the best of three sets, he's got a chance of, you know, it's going to be a fairly weak field, let's be honest. Like He's got a chance of getting a bronze medal there by the fact that some of the best players aren't there who can beat him still. Um, but it's going to be after that. Is he going to be able to get through these tournaments? Is he going to be able to practice, build any momentum? I think if he gets to the end of the year and he's not found himself getting a bit more of a run than he's having now, then I think... I'm more like concerned. Actually, he will pack it in by the end of the year. Now, in some ways, it's. I totally get that on the practice, and I, I said for a while I think that might be a problem for him. But no amount of practice is going to make make him get out of the corners. The fact that he has a metal hip is what stops him getting out of the corner. So even if you gave him now, even if somehow you could make it possible that he can practice for four hours a day doing what he does. I still don't see how he's going to be able to move the way that he did. And if he can't move the way that he did, he wouldn't have won three slams. He'd have probably been losing in the quarterfinals, playing the way that he always has, which is where he's at now. And so I think that is still going to be the ceiling for him is the fact that he has a metal hip. Yeah, for sure. I, and I'm not saying in terms of a ceiling, I think that's going to make the difference between him and winning a slam. But yeah. the other side is that, you know, like the Ofter match this week was a great example. Like some of the tennis he was playing was just dreadful. And like, you know, some of the, and even against Berrettini, he kind of alluded it to himself. He was like, I've not faced anyone with this serve. I can't practice against this. I can't go and find an 140 mile an hour serve. I need to play these matches to kind of give myself even half a chance. And you know, I don't think he has a chance of beating Berrettini playing like that on grass. Now I think that's the reality, but I think his frustration is coming from, he feels the conditions to even get there are wrong. And while I agree with you, the movement's not there. There were signs, you know, he, as you say, he hits the ball so well. I mean, some of the, 
even in that first set against Chapeau when he was kind of coming back, he was playing some really good stuff. Um, but yeah, physically, I think is it the writing seems to be on the wall, really, from that side of things. Also, a problem he's always had is this: these two matches that he won this week were no different from Peak Murray. He, he's always had this habit of getting himself in battles when yeah. he shouldn't do in slams, like two sets to love down to Adrian Manorino at that US Open that time. It, it's always a problem he's had that he, he's not been able to manage his his physicality because he gets himself in. He has these lapses in concentration where he loses sets. So I don't see how that would change now. Um, it, so and that will always keep leading to him being having a problem in terms of getting through matches quick. Yeah, and he, you know, he went on about that. The Basilash really one particularly, he was furious at himself about that. Like in terms of, he said, "I need to give myself physically the best chance. I can't be throwing away five love leads and losing that set." You know, that's absolutely crazy. Like it's another round that's unnecessary. And you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, it's hard to know. What the, that that was a freak. To be fair, I mean, it's not often you see him losing a set from five love up, if ever, with three breaks, but. You know, you're right. He, he loves to take the scenic route in all of these matches. There's no way Oscar Ossa should be taking more than a set. You know, Ossa played pretty well and can win a set, but there's no way that should have gone to five. Murray's level was just so poor in the middle of that match. Um, and yeah, it's going to be tough if he's going to keep chucking sets away to kind of give his body any chance of going any further. Sorry, I've muted myself there. That's so rookie. Hilarious. Um, let's look at kind of the, the players who are left in the, the men's draw. Um, is there anyone we can see basically, and it's the same question I think I asked last week, is there anyone we can see beating Novak Djokovic, Calvin? Any any form at all that suggests someone might be able to do it? I think that probably the, no would be my short answer. Um, slightly longer answer would be Sparrow's playing pretty well. And there's a feeling amongst the players that He's, he is playing very well. Um, mm. He's not really done it on grass, but he's he's played all right and he's beating decent players. Taylor Fritz is now pushover, mm. um, and he he sort of beat he you know took relatively easy care of him uh, yesterday. Just, just a word, sorry, just while I remember and while it's relevant, just a word on Taylor Fritz. Taylor Fritz had knee surgery like three and a half weeks ago, and dragged himself off a hospital bed to be here. And then, like, beat Steve Johnson in five sets in the second round and took a set off Alexander Zverev. So I just wanted to say that because it's an incredible effort to be playing at that level, given what he's done. Um, Zverev I, I, think the surgery, I think the surgery that he had, though, I think that's a pretty relative um, routine one. It's not like he had a cruciate ligament taken out. <laughs> no, no, but, like, <laughs> I think yeah. any surgery, like, you know, yeah. so, so close to it, especially a grass court slam in your knee, I'm um, going to get behind. But yeah, that's but interesting yeah. because I think Zverev, probably someone before the tournament, you would have maybe scoffed at a bit. Yeah, well, you know my thoughts on him as a, <laughs> a person and also two of his shots are pretty crap. Yeah. Um, he's he's gone the, the, the way that he's gone about, the fact that his second serve is still pretty ropey, but he seems to serve about 80% for a serve, so it just takes it out of the equation. <laughs> I um, mean, that's one way to solve the problem. And then when he does have to hit a second serve, he just hit another first because he makes eight out of ten of them anyway. So, yeah. uh, and it, it's huge. When it, I, I've seen it in person a couple of times this week, and it is a massive serve. It's not the most accurate, as I've said before. He kind of throws it up and aims for anywhere in the box, but it is a huge crushing serve. Do you think he beats Berrettini in the quarterfinals? 
Berrettini's look pretty good. I've watched Berrettini. I watched. We'll get onto it in a minute when we talk about the bubble. But basically, you're not allowed to go and watch any of the matches. Um, the only match you can really see is I think it's caught free from the ba- balcony of the restaurant. Yeah. And but Berrettini's played on there a couple of times. I watched a couple of his matches, and he looks pretty good. Berrettini, I must say, he's similar in the first serve. He doesn't see it's not the most accurate first serve, but he chucks it up there and absolutely leathers it. Um, and yeah, that's a that's a close match. I'd say. Those two are the distant second favourite behind Djokovic. It's quite an interesting. Uh, I mean, the top half of the draw. If anyone of the get other than Novak gets to the final, will be an absolute miracle. But the bottom half's quite interesting because I, I think there's four of them who could get there. Um, well, I mean, any of them could get there in theory, but the four I think is pretty tough to call between Zverev, Berrettini, Federer, and I still think. Medvedev's random enough to somehow sneak through that four. They're, they're the four I'm looking at as the potential finalists. So I'm probably I'm leaning to Berrettini of the four, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if any of the other three somehow found their way into that final. I'm gonna I'm gonna like again a bit like Calvin who wrote off Zverev last week, and I who wrote off Medvedev last week. I'm gonna kind of get behind Daniil Medvedev because he is playing well. Like, he had a tricky first-round draw on Jan Leonard's troop, and he got rid of him, albeit in four sets. He absolutely brutalised Carlos Alcaraz, who is, you know, okay, like, not a grass-court player, but in stretch of the imagination, pretty, you know, big stage for him, and, and he didn't play particularly well for the most part. But then he came through from two sets down against Marin Cilic, who is a real threat at the moment, playing good tennis. He's a grass-court fiend. So there's nothing to suggest that Dionne Medvedev can't go to the semi-final or the final here. He's in that weird mood as well, where he's actually kind of like engaging with the crowd angrily. Like yeah. you know, Alcaraz won, he was kind of like sticking his hand to his ear the whole time. Like, why aren't you cheering for me? I, I don't know. I've just got a bit of a sense about him. In like, when, like when he was at the US, the same yeah. sort of thing, right? He's kind of just in that mode where he's working. With, and actually, the French Open result has kind of convinced me on this point as well. You know, he... I think he is starting to actually really tune himself into the slams. He's become a very good slam player now where he he knows he should, you know, Clay is terrible on really on the whole and he's still running to quarters doing his job, runs into Sizzabas and loses. I suspect that might be the case here either to a Federer or a Berrettini, but I, I don't know. I, I think he's got a better game for grass than Clay certainly. And, you know, I've just got a slight outside feeling that he, he could, Spring a surprise, not win the thing. I don't see anyone beating Djokovic, but he, he might find himself in the final. And you know, I've, I've got there myself, but you know, like we, we just mentioned, there, there's a bloke in there who has won seven or eight of these. Um, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, he's the as I, as I said last week, though, the more he plays, the better he's going to get. Whether he's going to get to a stage where he can beat the top players in time, I don't know, but if he gets to the semi. He's going to have had a hell of a lot of tennis at that stage. The rust will be brushed off. And I think I might favour If he gets to the semi, I might favour him against whoever he plays in the semi. And if it's Berrettini particularly, that's a very new feeling for Berrettini coming in, like coming towards the first Grand Slam final. Um, he's been semi before though, right? He's been semis, but I just yeah. mean in terms of he's never won in that position. It's not, you know... The, I think still with Berrettini particularly, he gets to a point in the tournament he thinks, oh, I can win this. And then he doesn't yeah, yeah. start thinking that. Um, 
so it'd be interesting. I, I think that'd be a really good quarterfinal lineup in the bottom half. Zverev, Berrettini, Federer, Medvedev. That that would be a really strong <clears throat> two fifty fifty matches on paper for me. And by the way, if Medvedev wins Wimbledon or if he loses in the final to someone not called Djokovic, he becomes world number one. Yeah. Um, that's that's how how much good form he's been in and how how much he's closed the gap at the top. Uh, there is incidentally an absolutely seismic chasm from number two to number three of about 2,000 points, uh, which is pretty remarkable. But anyway, more on world rankings when there's less tennis to talk about. And we should as well, and you alluded to it there, Calvin, talk a bit about the bubble. You've spent the last, well, I suppose the best part of a week inside the Wimbledon bubble with Luke Johnson. Um, we came down and watched him play with Anton Matusevic against Alex Dimonura and Matt Reed. They, they lost, I think, 7-6, 6-2, Calvin. Just, just a match briefly. Um, I mean, it looked like... Luke, your player, Luke served for the set and got broken and it, it hit him quite hard, I think. Yeah, it's a strange game when he served for the set because he made four first serves and first serves in doubles are like, they're essential. You want to be serving yeah. 75-70% first serves, whereas in singles, 60% is probably good enough, but doubles, it's more important. Luke served four first serves, they four good returns. Um, at, the love, at the love 15 point, um, without going into too much detail to bore people, um, they had a good return and crossed and Luke saw the cross, went for the line volley and clicked the top of the line, clicked the top of the net. And that would have made an, an extra quarter of an inch would have made it 15 all. Instead, it's love 30. Um, the next point, Matt Reed hit an unbelievable return winner. Um, and it was love for it was strange because they cruised through their service games really up until that point. And in that service game temps, <clears throat> that service game seemed to take about 30 seconds in total because it was four first serve, four return winning shots, really. Mm. So, um, yeah, it, it was a bit disappointing, but Dimonor was, I guess you could say Dimonor was the quality player on the court. He made probably the shot of the championship, which I think most people have seen because it's gone a bit viral. Um, so this is the one where basically a Anton plays an angle volley, you know, basically perpendicular to the court and yeah. Dimonor hits it from two inches off the ground around the net post and clips the line. Yeah, and from where I was sat as well, um, I could see it basically went about an inch off the ground the whole way because he went <laughs> around the net post yeah. and clipped the outside of the line. And it, it was, yeah, it was a phenomenal shot. It, probably the best shot I've seen in real life. <laughs> um, I like that in the video, like Luke, Luke is just stood staring, I think, at you. And Anton's yeah. hands are just in the air, like surely something about this is not allowed. Like, like surely there's something against the rules here I mean the coach Anton played really well in the match he served really well but the coach in me after I've watched it back a few times I now struggle to watch without getting a bit pissed off because Anton should have put the ball away twice yeah 100% uh, 100% even the volley that even the shot that Dimonor hits it off it's very exhibition stuff um, <laughs> like it, it's a put away volley really yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah you know we we like the sport for those moments, don't yeah, we? So, um, yeah, match was a bit disappointing, but... Uh, bubble life, um, lots of, I mean, highs and lows, lots of unpublishable stuff, but uh, how did you find it? Um, can you Have you got more sympathy for players uh, in bubbles now? It, it was fine, you know, it, it was it was fine. It was, I guess it was a bit different. The only strange thing was that it was bang in central London. Yeah. And I don't know why they went for that 
it would have been it was almost tempting you there it was like dangling the the, the carrot it was like right there central London and, and I don't know why they just didn't I guess I don't know the hotels of London I don't know whether there was a big enough hotel maybe so to Wimbledon the Park, Pla the Park Plaza Westminster has about 1200 rooms um, and I guess like it, 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 there's a couple of things that you need and one one of the things I think all you really wanted was to have everyone in the same hotel because yeah. from a practical standpoint it's just easier to do it that way um and also a bit fairer so i suppose that limits you to quite a small yeah. group and then you also want it to be relatively luxurious because basically you want to put rafa nadal in a suite if he's going to come yeah um, so in i terms guess of... go on, sorry james no no, no go on now in terms of like the life there it, it was fine you know in the hotel was fine the, the, the only thing i felt was was difficult was that you couldn't go and watch the matches yeah. Uh, once, once you were at the grounds, you you were basically stuck in. There's a practice area, and then there's a players restaurant over the other side that you could go to, but you couldn't unless you were involved in the match as the coach of one of the players or in their entourage. You couldn't go and watch. So tennis coaches like to go and watch. It didn't really affect me, but tennis coaches like to go and watch next opponents, that kind of thing. That they they just weren't allowed to do that. Um, mm. And other than that, the only other difficulty was anyone that knows me knows that I like a couple of cans of Coke a day and you couldn't get Coke in the hotel with the meals. Uh, you could buy it at £4.20 a bottle. Um, <laughs> and at Wimbledon, they've been taken up by the sugar tax and you can't get full fat Coke in Wimbledon anymore. So um, it was basically like Coca-Cola prohibition for a week. <laughs> So it, to be honest, it was probably easier to get actual Coke in a small bag than it was to get Coke in a can. True, true, yeah. But yeah, it was. It look, it 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 was it was an experience. It was. I, I didn't find it any problem at all. I'd have no problem doing the same thing again. I think whether whether all the bubbles have been as as nice as that one mm. is a different matter. Yeah, it was interesting talking to Jamie Murray uh, about it, and he's they were like, "How has the bubble been?" He's like. Well, I mean, it's been fine, but I'm not going to say I want to do it because usually at Wimbledon, I just stay at home and drive in and it's like five minutes. So he was sort of like, he was trying to not have a go, but he was also like, obviously I would rather not do this because my house is right there. And instead I'm having to get a bus to the court. I think this, this was one of the difficulties that the players had. And I spoke to a couple of the players about this, that basically when... If you're not on first or second, if you're later on, you can usually gauge what time you're going to be on and you set off accordingly. Yeah. But the, the hotel was, it could have been, I think as it's been said a few times, the hotel was anywhere between 50 minutes and 90 minutes to get to London traffic, traffic obviously. So the players ended up having to be around the club for a long time. So I spoke to a couple of guys who were like fourth or fifth on yeah, and they was it, it's tough then because players don't like they like to get there, have a hit, maybe an hour before the match, and that's it. They mm. don't like players don't like being at the the tennis courts for five six hours, yeah. which they ended up having to be just because of the nature of combined of London traffic and the different time variations of five set tennis before mm. you go on. Mm. Yeah, frustrating, but interesting uh, nevertheless. Um, and I think it's gen generally, I haven't heard many complaints from players about about this particular bubble. So that's something. Uh, and we haven't had any significant breaches, or if we have, then they've been brushed under the carpet. I'm sure Calvin will text us some significant breaches later on. Um, we should also just before we go, 
uh, look at the fantasy Wimbledon, uh, which has been going well for some, not so well for others as usual. Uh, just over 200 entries this time around. We've got a three-way tie at the top between uh, Anita Anita Jones, the uh, Premier League fantasy reporter, who you may recognise if you're a big FBL fan. Turns out fantasy is a transferable skill. Uh, she is joint top with, and I apologise in advance for butchering this. I think it's Owen Mitchell, but it's spelt with a, some Gs. Um, and so I apologise if that should be pronounced other ways, but um, it's Owen. Owen's an Arsenal season ticket holder, so I hope he wins because he needs some light in his life. Um, uh, the other person is Fran Kay's Wimby Legends, all tied on 28 points. Um, internally, I am smashing the crap out of uh, my <laughs> podcast colleagues. Uh, young, dumb and well-strung, flying on 20 points, despite some serious disappointments from Kane Ishigori, Riley Apelka and Christopher O'Connell, uh, who all three... They all have Apelka. Uh, I think so. Yeah, Calvin had a pelka. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, we, pelka, yeah, we did all have a pelka. It's kind of a wash. Uh, Calvin is on nineteen points, one behind me. I think we basically have the same team now, except you've got Igor Shontek. So I think you may well overtake me, uh, George. You basically spent the whole week worrying more about your fancy team than actually doing any work. So um, <laughs> yeah, I assume you know the ins and outs of your implications. Uh, I think I'm on the same points as Calvin as well. So we're all yeah. I um I basically need Carolina Mukova to do very well from here. <laughs> and you need to lose your female players. I, I guess it's possible for me to get like a Barty Mukova semi-final. Yeah. And you yeah. need some Federer as well, I think. Federer would be a big win. Yeah, but it's it's Federer. You two are both Berrettini, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'll probably be backing Zverev in the quarters and Federer in the quarters to kind of come through and then Federer to sneak the final. That's that's kind of my route. But yeah, it's, it's been, I think this one, if you look at the number of players I've got left, I've not, I've not done this accurately in terms of going back, but you know, it's, I think most people have lost a lot more players than in other tournaments. I kind of feel like you'd get to this point and there'd be a lot more sixes, maybe even the odd seven. Seems most people are down to like four or five. It's yeah, it's one just, six in fourth, I think. But I'm just looking at the top twenty, and yeah, for everyone is pretty much down to four players. Or uh, the best name in fantasy, by the way, yeah. is all for Quan and Quan for all, uh, which really made me laugh. And uh, that is, uh, they have six players left, um, in, well, not including Sunwoo Quan, who is gone. But Federer, Berrettini, Sonego, who I think very few people picked. Uh, and then Barty, Shontek, and Goff. So I think, I think all for Quan and Quan for all is only a point behind the leaders and has a real shot at winning it. I would suggest. Uh, but thank you very much for playing. If you did, uh, and do keep up with us at Love Tennis Pod on Twitter uh, for all the updates. I was just going to say, I, I still I've moaned about this a few times in the podlets, but the, the qualifiers has been the most painful thing for me. I think losing Rinduk Mech 13 12 in the fifth will haunt me for the rest of my days. I in think. a match that took about three days to complete <laughs> as well because of the rain in the early, uh, the early couple of uh, early couple of days. Um, I think that's all we've got time for. Uh, we will, of course, be back next week after the final. I think we're going to try and squeeze something in between the Wimbledon final and the Euros final. Uh, we will try not to talk too much about football, especially if England loses Denmark. We'll talk nothing about football. Um, I've been James Gray. They've been George Belcher and Calvin Betton. Make sure you follow us at Love Tennis Pod on Twitter. Uh, if you're listening uh, on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, just try and hit some stars, preferably five of them. That would be great. And if you want to leave a message, that would be lovely too. 
Take care and we'll catch you next time. Beautiful. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.